rest and relaxation, and then this happens. Suspense. <laughs> you want to click for me? <laughs> Okay, computer crash. <laughs> Can you click the next slide, please? Thank you, yes. <laughs> uh, it's not real, don't worry. <laughs> uh, you're anxiously waiting as the compu computer reboots. Uh, did you save your work? And then it reboots, you realize disaster has struck. You've lost it all. You have to start all over again. All that work lost in one moment. Uh, you start all over again, long time passes, finally you're back to where you were, ready to submit, ready to give the presentation, and you're, you're, you're saving it every 10 seconds just in case, you've got 10 backups on Dropbox and Box and everywhere else as well, you hope this time it will be different, this time uh, you'll get it done, and you'll get to rest. Well, it's a little bit like that as you come to the book of, of Numbers. Uh, we're up to 20, chapter 26 today. Uh, in chapters 1 to 10, uh, God ordered a, a census at Mount Sinai uh, of all the fighting men, and he gave them 10 chapters uh, of laws to help them prepare to enter the promised land. Uh, and what was meant to be a, a joyous and, and triumphant journey into the promised land uh, became a torturous wandering. Uh, due to the repeated rebellion of the Israelites, they, uh, they grumbled about hunger, uh, about thirst. They grumbled about their leaders. And worst of all, they refused to enter the promised land. And so a short journey became 40 long years of wandering in the desert. Uh, in chapter 21 to 25, uh, Israel enters the plains of Moab. They, they're protected by God from the, from the evil charms of Balaam. Israel stands now poised right at the edge of the promised land, just a, just a few miles from Jericho. And then last week we saw, once again, disaster strikes. Uh, they, uh, in a similarity to the, the golden calf incident, they're, they're led into immorality, they're led into idolatry. They whore after the Moabite women. 24,000 are struck down with a plague. It's as if in Israel's his, in, in the book of Numbers... Israel has had blue screen after blue screen after blue screen. And we're really starting to wonder at this point, are they ever going to make it? Are they ever going to enter the promised land? Well, chapter 26 begins, uh, point, uh, point two, with another census. Will you turn with me to Numbers chapter 26 and, and verse 1? Can you go to the next slide? Numbers 26, verse 1. After the plague, the Lord said to Moses and to Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel from 20 years old and upward by their father's houses, all in Israel who are able to go to war. Now, as we come to chapter 26, we're, we're finally back to where we started in chapter 1. A new census and 10 more chapters of laws to follow. It's a fresh start, it's a new opportunity, it's a second chance to enter the promised land. Uh, the signal for the census is the plague, you see in verse 1. Uh, now the plague uh, of chapter 25 was not just another plague. Uh, it was, if you like, the, the final judgment of God that wiped out the last of the first generation. And with them now gone, the time has come 
to, to enter the land. And most remarkably, in, in these last 11 chapters of the book of Numbers, you will find that there is not a single death recorded. Uh, even as they go out to fight the Midianites to, uh, to avenge them for leading them into immorality, even then as they defeat the, the Midianites, we're told not a single Israelite dies. Things are going to be different this time. Now, like in chapter 1, it's a census of the fighting men. Uh, it's grouped according to the 12 tribes of Israel, you can see as you work down. Uh, once again, uh, Levi is not counted because he won't have an inheritance of land. Uh, he will serve the Lord in the, in the tabernacle. Uh, and instead, to make up for it, so we've still got 12, Joseph is divided into two tribes, into, into Manasseh and Ephraim, uh, his sons. No surprises there. But the significance of the census is seen as we compare it to the first census. Uh, in the first census, ne next slide you can see on the table, uh, there was 603,000 uh, Israelites or so and 22,000 Levites. Uh, and you can see in the second census is roughly the same. Verse 51, we're told there's about 601,000 Israelites. And verse 62, we're told there's about 23,000 Levites. And so firstly, we're to see in this census the faithfulness of God. Uh, the Israelites may have rebelled again and again and again, but God has not forgotten his promises to them. Despite all the, the plagues, all the punishments, all the disasters, the death of an entire generation of people, God has kept over 600,000 men besides the women and children alive in a desert for 40 years. It's a remarkable testimony to the faithfulness of God in the face of human sin. God has multiplied the Israelites as the sand of the seashore, just as he promised to Abraham. And this census makes it very clear his intent on keeping the other promises to Abraham as well. He's going to bring them into the land. And they are going to enjoy his blessing and rule. In fact, the very last time we, uh, we read this exact list of clan names was back in Genesis 46. And in the same chapter, you can see, next slide, that God actually made a promise to, to Jacob that one day he would bring his people back. But the census here is, is not just a census of fighting men. Uh, the census is to, to determine, once they enter the land who will receive which part of the inheritance. So look, look with me at chap, uh, chapter 26, verse 52. Chapter 26, verse 52. Do flick there, help you to follow. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Among these the land shall be divided for inheritance according to the number of names. To a large tribe you shall give a large inheritance. To a small tribe you shall give a small inheritance. Every tribe shall be given its inheritance in proportion to its list. But the land shall be divided by lot. According to the names of the tribes of their fathers, they shall inherit. Their inheritance shall be divided according to a lot between the larger and the smaller. So you see how it works? Basically, they, they choose the area by, by doing lots, kind of like a, uh, you know, a divine lottery, if you like. And then after that, they, they divide it up. A large tribe gets a, a large piece of land, Small tribe gets a small piece of land. Uh, what's the point of all this? I think the point is this. All who enter the promised land will share equally 
in the inheritance. Uh, There's not going to be some who have more, some who have less. They all share equally in this blessing from God. And yet, even as this census testifies to the the faithfulness of God, to him keeping his promises, it also represents a warning of God's judgment. Now, there's at least two key differences between this census and the previous one. Uh, Firstly, there are the numbers of people. Go to the next slide. Uh, If you study the, the table carefully there, you'll notice that not everyone fared equally well over the last 40 years. Uh, Sibian in particular, you can see at the top there, was utterly decimated. 60% of them or more fell in the wilderness. Uh, Some uh, fared a little bit better. Uh, uh, Manasseh, Benjamin uh, in particular. And I think the, the change in numbers just reminds us of all the judgments that have fallen Uh, Simeon, in particular, in the last chapter, was the one that uh, had the spear that was stabbed through him, and then the plague came. But there's lots of other reminders scattered throughout the census as well. Uh, In verse 1, if you have a look at verse 1, we were reminded of the plague. Uh, 24,000 struck down. Uh, In verse 9, we're reminded of Korah's rebellion. Have a look at uh, verse 9. The sons of Eliab, Nemuel, Dathan, and Abiram... These are the Dathan and Abiram chosen from the congregation who contended against Moses and Aaron in the company of Korah when they contended against the Lord. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up together with Korah when that company died, when the fire devoured 250 men, and they became a warning. But the sons of Korah did not die. We're reminded again of this, this judgment that fell on Korah back in chapter 16, uh, where the ground swallowed them up. There's also a a hint of grace there as well, did you notice? Uh, He doesn't hold the children accountable. The sons didn't die. Uh, These sons of Korah will go on to write some of the uh, Psalms of praise uh, later on in the Bible. Uh, If you come down to verse 19, uh, we we, we are told about Ur and Onan, uh, Judah's two sons, who the Lord put to death for their wickedness back in chapter 38. Uh, If you come down to verse 61, uh, verse 61, we're told about Nadab and Abihu, who died when they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord in the early chapters. Uh, Again and again, we're reminded of the judgment that has come on the previous generation. Uh, In fact, come down to verse 63, and really this is the point. Verse 63... These are those listed by Moses and Eleazar the priest who listed the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. But among these, there was not one of those listed by Moses and Aaron the priest who had listed the people of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord had said of them, they shall die in the wilderness. Not one of them was left except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of of none. Now, see, the, the, test, the, the census testifies to God's faithfulness. He's going to keep his promises to this generation. But it is a reminder that God's judgment fell. The census is there to make sure that none of the previous generation is still alive, except Joshua and Caleb, those two spies. Now, how do we apply uh, a census like this in the Old Testament? Uh, Well, the key is to remember that uh, just as Israel is uh, 
on a pilgrimage, if you like, to the promised land. Uh, so we as Christians are, are headed on our own pilgrimage uh, to the real promised land, the promised land of heaven. And just as in Numbers 26, uh, we have this census, the, the New Testament itself will, will have a, a census uh, in which these two strands, the, uh, the faithfulness of God to his promises and God's justice and judgment are held together in perfect tension. See, just as God would keep his promises to Israel in a, in a partial sense, he'll keep them perfectly in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and we see that in, in Revelation chapter 7, where we have another census. I think it's on the screen. Uh, the apostle uh, uh, John listens, and he hears uh, 144,000 uh, from all of the different tribes. Uh, click again, thanks. Uh, God, keep going. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, see, they have this census, 12,000 from each of the tribes uh, of Israel. Uh, and then in verse 9, the next line, uh, he, he, he looks and he sees a, a great multitude from every tribe, nation, language and people. Here is a census of all God's people who would make it to the real promised land to heaven. And yet at the very same time, the, the book of Revelation records for us the fate of those who rebelled, who did not make it. Uh, they're excluded from the great garden city. They're, they're crushed by the wine press of God's wrath. They are thrown into the lake of fire. And so on the one hand, this census in Numbers 26 gives us a warning. If you rebel against God you will not make it to the promised land. You will be excluded from his presence. You will miss out. But we can also be encouraged at the same time. God is faithful to his promises. Human sin cannot overthrow God's purposes. He will still achieve what he has promised. Even at the cross, as, as, as people put Jesus there, rejecting him, God still can achieve his purposes for the world. And not only do we see God's faithfulness here, but we see his grace as well. See, that the second generation was not any better than the first generation. Uh, they complained just like the first. They failed to trust God just like the first. Uh, they committed idolatry and sexual immorality just like the first. Saw that last week. The only difference I take it between the first and the second is that the first refused to enter and the second did not. And so perhaps we could ask the question from Numbers 26. Do we want to be in, in heaven? Do we want to live under his perfect rule? Is that what we're longing for? Is that what we're looking forward to? Uh, if it's not, if we reject Christ and his crops, then this census assures us we will not be in heaven. God will make sure of that. But the census also encourages us. We do want to be there. If we do accept his invitation, God is faithful and just. He will get us there, despite all of our imperfections. Well, that brings us to point three, the daughters of Zelophehad. 
Uh, Try and say that one three times quickly. It's quite a mouthful. Now, we meet them for the first time in Numbers 27, and they're going to appear again right at the end in Numbers 36. They sort of frame this whole last section of the book. And the issue here is that of inheritance. Can you miss out on the promised inheritance? Well, the five daughters come to Moses, and then they say in chapter 27, verse 3, Our father died in the wilderness... He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but he died for his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan? Because he had no son. Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. Uh, The problem, you see, is that uh, in those days, the inheritance travelled through the sons. But this guy had no sons, and he was dead, meaning that all his property would be lost and his daughters would be left uh, destitute. Now, I wonder if you've ever heard the expression, don't count your chickens before they're hatched. I think it's a little bit like that with these, uh, these women. They're, 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 they're asking for an inheritance in the land, but they haven't even entered the land yet and conquered it. They're so unlike their father, Now, their father, in rebellious unbelief, refusing to enter the promised land and dying in the wilderness, these women, even before they've entered, wanting their share, putting their faith in God's promise. And their faith is richly rewarded, did you see verse 5? Moses brought their case before the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, the daughters of Zelophehad are right. You shall give them possession of an inheritance among their father's brothers and transfer the inheritance of their father to them. Uh, The Lord is gracious and merciful. Uh, God declares that, uh, that these women, even though they're vulnerable, even though they're not men, that they can inherit the possession as well. And in verses 8 to 11, he enshrines this in Jewish law for all uh, following generations. Well, how does this episode uh, apply to us? Uh, The point is not so much about women's rights or or something like that. The point is this. If you put your faith in God's promise, you will not miss out on the inheritance. If you put your faith in God's promise, you will not miss out on the inheritance. See, the actions of others cannot exclude you from heaven. The circumstances in which you find yourself in life cannot exclude you from heaven. It doesn't matter if your parents were not Christians. It doesn't matter if you were brought up in a Buddhist family or a a Muslim family or some other family. If you put your faith in Christ, if you want the inheritance, you will not miss out. Everyone who puts their faith in Christ has a secure place in the coming kingdom. Uh, 1 Peter 1 puts it uh, quite nicely uh, up on the screen. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, see what Peter is saying. If you trust in Christ, you can rest assured your 
your inheritance in heaven is perfectly safe. You will never miss out. Well, point four, we see Joshua succeeds Moses. In verses 12 to 23, where we look to the issue of the leadership that's required to bring Israel into the promised land. God reminds Moses it's not going to be him who leads them in. Verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, Go up into this mountain of Abarim and see the land that I have given to the people of Israel. When you've seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people, as your brother Aaron was, because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin, when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy at the waters before their eyes. Uh, Back in chapter 20, if you remember, Moses had rebelled uh, against the Lord at Meribah. He, he, He struck the rock. Uh, with his staff instead of speaking when the people complained. Uh, Aaron is already dead, and God reminds him Moses is going to join him very soon. Uh, It's a reminder here, no one is indispensable to God. Uh, Even Moses, the great Moses, was not immune to the judgment of God. Uh, God could bring his people into the promised land without Moses. But rather than worrying about that, Moses' concern, did you notice, is for the people. He says, verse 15, Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. To enter the promised land... Israel is going to need a shepherd. That They need a, a spirit-filled leader who is going to bring them in. Without this spirit-filled shepherd, all they will do is wander and wander with no hope at all of ever arriving in the promised land. And so God, knowing this, he says in verse 18, uh, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit, of, is the spirit, And lay your hand on him, make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority, that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. You shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. Now God provides Joshua to lead his people. We're told he's a man indwelt by the Spirit of God. He's a man, of course, who's proved himself faithful and obedient time and again. Uh, Joshua is a man who who has seen the promised land himself, and now he's going to lead them in. But his leadership's going to be different from Moses. He's he's going to be a a military leader. Uh, Moses only gives him some of his authority. The rest he has to submit to the priest, who will declare God's revealed will. Now, once again, how does this little episode here uh, apply to us? I think we see here that two things must happen for Israel to enter the promised land. The death of their saviour and the leadership of a spirit-filled shepherd. And, of course, both of those pictures are going to bring us forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus is the saviour. He's the, he's the prophet like Moses who's redeemed us, not from Egypt, from, but from sin and death. 
And, and like Moses, uh, Jesus will die outside of the promised land as he, as he bears the judgment of sin. Not, not his own, of course, but of ours. Only as, as the Saviour dies can the people enter. But not only that, Jesus is also the Spirit-filled shepherd who will, who will lead the people into the heaven itself as well. Uh, Jesus' name, you might remember, is actually the name Joshua translated into Greek. Without Jesus to lead us, to be our shepherd, we'd have no hope of arriving in the promised land. But like Joshua, Jesus comes from the promised land, from heaven itself, to lead his people in. Like like Joshua, Jesus is anointed with the Spirit. He's anointed at his baptism. Uh, Like Joshua, is affirmed by Moses, placing on his hand, the voice from heaven comes. You are my son, with whom I am well pleased. Like Joshua, Jesus is, is faithful and obedient, not giving in to the devil's temptations. Jesus is the shepherd. John chapter 10, Jesus will say this on the screen. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. What do we see here? If we want to go to heaven, there's only one way. Through Jesus. Without Jesus, we're we're like sheep. Ever seen sheep that don't have a shepherd? They wander around everywhere. No hope of arriving. If getting to heaven depended on me, my moral performance, me getting myself there to heaven, I'd never arrive. I'd die in the wilderness. But Jesus came from heaven to lead us into heaven. And he did that by laying down his life for us on the cross, being our saviour, bearing the punishment of our sin, taking God's wrath on himself, and then rising again, ascending into heaven to prepare a place for us in that promised land. Maybe today that you're here and you haven't yet put your trust in Jesus as your, as your saviour and your king. If that is you, let me say, you're in danger. You're, you're wandering aimlessly through life. Don't think it'll be okay in the end. You will not make it. You will not make it to heaven. Turn to Jesus. Trust in him. He can get you there. But if you have put your trust in Jesus, be assured, you will make it. Jesus will make sure you get to heaven. And he urges us to to share his kind of compassion as he looks out on the lost of the world. Uh, We read in Matthew chapter 9, picking up on this exact chapter, Jesus saw the crowds. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You see Jesus, he he looks out on the world like sheep without a shepherd, lost, aimless, no hope of making it to heaven. And he has compassion. He urges us to to, to pray that God will send out workers. 
who will bring, who will speak the gospel and bring them under the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ? Will we share Jesus' compassion? Will we pray for the lost? Will we speak to them of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Will we realize, like Jesus, without him, they are lost? No hope of making it to heaven. And the guest night will be a very good place to invite friends who are still lost and shepherdless. Well, we're up to point five, offerings, offerings. Uh, In chapters 28 to 29, God provides a comprehensive yearly calendar for the Israelites. Uh, You'll notice, uh, firstly, that there there are daily, weekly, and monthly offerings. Let's pick it up, chapter 28 and verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel and say to them, My offering, my food for my food offerings, my pleasing aroma, you shall be careful to offer to me at its appointed time. You shall say to them, This is the food offering that you shall offer to the Lord. Two male lambs, a year old without blemish, day by day, as a regular offering. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Also a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering, mixed with a quarter of a hin of beaten oil. It's a regular burnt offering, which was ordained at Mount Sinai for a pleasing offering, a food offering to the Lord. Its drink offering shall be a quarter of a hin for each lamb. In the holy place you shall pour out a drink offering of strong drink to the Lord. And the other lamb you shall offer at twilight, like the grain offering of the morning and like its drink offering You shall offer it as a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. I'm not sure why I got all of the chapters in numbers on offerings, but here's another two chapters for us. Uh, Notice how they're introduced here in verse 2. My offerings, my food for my food offerings, my pleasing aroma. Uh, God sees these offerings are his right, his possession. And he commands that these offerings be brought daily, weekly, monthly. I won't read it all, but as we read on, we find there's not only these daily offerings, uh, every morning, every evening. There's also weekly offerings. Every Sabbath day they need to offer. Uh, There's monthly offerings on the first day of each month. You can see the quantities on on the table there. Two lambs, two lambs, and so on and so forth. But not only are there offerings daily, weekly, monthly, but there's, there's offerings during the, the holy days as well, or public holidays as we call them. Uh, see on the next slide, uh, it all begins with, with the Passover on the 14th day of the first month, and that's followed by uh, the one-week feast of unleavened bread, verse 16 to 25. Later after that, we have the harvest festival, Gawai, uh, the Feast of Weeks, Right? They, they offer the first fruits of all their crops to the Lord, along with more bulls, goats, rams, lambs, and the rest. Uh, then we have the Feast of Trumpets. That's on the, the first day of the seventh month. Uh, then we have the Day of Atonement. Uh, that's on the tenth day of the seventh month. And that's followed by the, the week, another week-long festival, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. And that begins on the fifteenth day of the seventh month. And just to finish it off, there's a few more on the eighth day uh, as well. Now, as you look at that table, you will see all the way through, 
there's the significance of the number seven. Right? There's offerings every seven days on the Sabbath. Uh, two of the feasts last seven days. Uh, the seventh month is the particularly important one. And all the way through, they offer multiples of seven lambs. Did you notice? Uh, and if you're wondering why the, the Feast of Booths is so funny with the 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7, right? You add it all up, you get 70. 7 times 10, 14 rams as well, you add up the twos, 98 lambs and 7 goats, all multiples of 7. Now, what is with the number 7? Well, you might know 7 in the Bible is God's number. That symbolizes totality, completeness, perfection. If you like, God requires the perfect sacrifice at the perfect time. The perfect sacrifice at the perfect time. We're told all the way through, the lamps, they must be unblemished lamps. The, the flower must be fine flour. God wants perfection. The perfect sacrifice. The perfect time. Now, in one sense, all of these offerings point us forward to the abundance of the promised land. And you just add it all up. All these sacrifices. In one year, they'd have to offer over a thousand lambs, a hundred bulls, over one ton of grain, a thousand bottles of wine and oil. And, and that's just the public sacrifices that they have to do. Uh, we're told at the end of the chapter that in addition to all of these, there's going to be private offerings as well. Just come down to chapter 29 and verse 39, chapter 29, verse 39. God says, at the end of all of these offerings, these you shall offer to the Lord at your appointed feasts, in addition to your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, for your burnt offerings, your, your grain offerings, and for your drink offerings, and for your peace offerings as well. It's a remarkable calendar, isn't it? I, I think it's designed... To, to drum into the Israelites' mind again and again and again and again these two things. Firstly, day after day, week after week, month after month, they'd be reminded that the only reason sinful people like them can live in the promised land is because of sacrifice, perfect sacrifice offered at the perfect time. And, and secondly, I think that the calendar is meant to remind the Israelites that, that, that worship is meant to be all of life, day after day, week after week, month after month. Uh, you didn't stop worshipping God because it was exam time. You, you didn't stop worshipping God because there was a work project that you needed to get done. You, know, you didn't stop worshipping God when it was holidays. Uh, did you notice where we get the word holidays from, right? Holy days. They were spent worshipping God. Now, just as an aside here, we're, we're reminded here that in the Bible, worship is, is rarely anything to do with singing. Right? Worship in the Bible, it includes singing, definitely, but worship in the Bible is an all-of-life activity. And at the heart of biblical worship is sacrifice. Now, we'll do very well, I think, to stop calling uh, our singing the praise and worship time and remind ourselves that worship is all of life, and at the heart of it is sacrifice. Uh, 
Well, how do all these offerings then apply to us today? Well, the first thing to say is that the New Testament emphatically affirms that we need not observe all these festivals and sacrifices anymore. And thank God for that. Imagine that. Every, every day you come to church, we slaughter a few more animals, right? <laughs> Eat it over uh, community lunch, right? We don't need to observe Sabbath days. We don't need to uh, have all the Bible holidays as well. All of these, these festivals, all these offerings, they're, they're pointing us forward uh, to Christ. Uh, we read in our New Testament reading, Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a, a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And Paul is saying here, uh, observing special days or having special festivals doesn't make you a, a super Christian. Now, all those things in the Old Testament are pointing us forward to Christ. And we see the same thing in Galatians chapter 4. Uh, Paul says to the Galatians, Formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? How are they doing this? You observe days and months, seasons and years. I'm afraid that I may have laboured over you. In, in vain. So the Galatian Christians were being tempted by the false teachers to go back to the Old Testament way of doing things, to have all these festivals, to have all these offerings so that they could be proper Christians. And Paul says, no. Uh, being a super Christian has got nothing to do with, with, with festivals and special days and offerings and all of those things. Now, Romans 14 will tell you it, you can choose to ob ob observe those things if you really want to. Uh, it's not wrong for us to celebrate Easter and Christmas and those things, but you don't have to do it. What does matter is that we see that all of these sacrifices and offerings are pointing forward to that perfect sacrifice of Christ offered at the perfect time on the cross. We remember that perfect sacrifice every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Through Jesus' death, he would, Jesus would fulfill all these festivals, including the Passover, which was one we read. In 1 Corinthians 5 verse 8, we read this. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. It's, it's a very interesting passage in the New Testament, I think. Uh, it's saying that instead of having festivals like they did in the Old Testament, the way that you celebrate Christ's death is by living righteous lives offered to him in worship. Our lives, our righteous lives, is much more important than having a special day. And just as the Israelites were to worship God day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, so too we are to, to respond to that perfect sacrifice of Christ by offering our whole lives to him as an act 
of worship. Uh, Romans chapter 12 will tell us this. Chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. God's desire is that we worship him with, with, with all of our life. And it is Jesus, uh, not the song leader, right, who is our worship leader. Uh, Jesus is the one who's offered that perfect sacrifice on the cross, uh, that, that, that fundamental act of worship. And so as we trust in his sacrifice and we respond, we give ourselves to, in all of life, worshipping him. See, there's no being a Sunday Christian. There's no, I'll give God the Sunday and the rest is for me. God demands my worship every day, morning and night. Doesn't matter if I've got exams. Doesn't matter if I've got a work project or not. Doesn't matter if I'm on holidays or not. All of life is to be lived as an act of worship to him. Now, I know we're well and truly out of time, so let me just make a few very brief comments on the final chapter on vows. Uh, he begins chapter 30, verse 1. Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel, saying, This is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Now, these are, the laws go on in chapter 30, but the whole point of them is to communicate how important it is to be someone who is faithful to your word. Uh, we live in a society where that doesn't happen, does it, very often. People twist their words, they go back on their words, happens in business stuff, happens in government, happens in everything. But God is always faithful to his word. When God vows something... On oath, he always does it. And he expects his people to do the same. And so did you make a vow to God? You follow him all your life. If he just helped you on that thing, better keep it. Did you vow before God that you're going to be faithful to your spouse till death do us part? You better keep your vow. God takes our word very seriously. Indeed. But God, in his kindness, in this chapter, gives a few exception clauses uh, in the case of times we've made foolish oaths. Uh, We're told here if a woman makes a foolish oath, didn't really think about what was happening, she can be released by it by her parents if she's at home, uh, or if she's married, then her husband can do it. You can see on the the table, I think, uh, it it will summarise it there. Uh, But under the Old Testament law, men men and widows didn't have that luxury. There was no escape clause for you. Now, Jesus will echo this teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew uh, Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says, Again, you've heard that it was said of old, You shall not swear falsely, but perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Uh, God wants his people to be people of truth people who are faithful to their word, so faithful, they don't need to make promises to people. They can just say yes or no, and people will believe them. 
Well, in conclusion then, we've seen Israel making their, preparing for their second attempt to enter the promised land. And we too, as Christians, are on the edge, making our preparations for the promised land of heaven. We've seen God's faithfulness and grace. He's going to keep his promise to this sinful people. We've seen all God's people get an equal share. No one misses out. We've seen God gets us to heaven through the death of his saviour and through his spirit-filled leader, shepherd. We've thought about Christ's perfect sacrifice that deals with our sin and the lives of truth and, and worship that we're meant to live in response. And so as we finish, let me ask you this question. I wonder if you are actually longing for the promised land. Are you longing to be in heaven? Are you longing to to live under God's rule there? Are we like these Israelites, on the verge? Or are we going to be like that first generation, recorded in the census, who missed out living for earthly things? Uh, Jesus said in um, in Matthew chapter 6, one last verse, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Is your life set on heaven? If so... Does your life show that all of life, worship, trust and truth that mark God's people? Now let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness and grace towards your people. Lord, we know that if it was up to us, we would indeed never make it to heaven. We would wander aimlessly like sheep without a shepherd. And so we thank you for sending your son to be our saviour, to offer the perfect sacrifice for our sin, to to lead us by your Spirit into the promised land of heaven. We thank you for uh, giving us this part of your word to, to show us who Jesus is and the kind of lives that you'd have us live in response. And so we pray that you would indeed help us to be those who have our hearts set on heaven, who trust in your promises who live all of life as an act of worship to you and who are marked by truth and faithfulness in all that we say and do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.